Imagine with me that there is someone who is at the top of their field. They have reached the peak, and then immediately following that, they start telling those who are close to them, and now I have to die. Now I have to die. Imagine that you have somebody who uh, has a number one hit on the, the Billboard Top 10 and just won a Grammy, and then they come to their friends and they're talking with, with their friends and they say, and, and now I have to die. I, I am just, I, now I have to die. Or somebody who uh, won an Oscar, they, they, everybody's going, wow, this is such a great actor, we, we want to see them in more things, and then they talk to the people closest to them and they say, yep, and now I'm going to go home and uh, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm just going to suffer now. Or somebody who is in a sports context, they've won the championship, they got the MVP, and then they say, yep, and now it's just suffering for me. Well, that's sort of what's happening here with Jesus as we're working our way through the book of Matthew. That Jesus has a high moment and then he tells his disciples, and now I'm going to have to go and suffer and die. So our text this morning, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. As the disciples were gathered around him, they were greatly distressed. And I can understand why they would be greatly distressed, because this is not the first time that Jesus has said this to them. In chapter 16, He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. And then this is what he said. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And after that, He takes some of his closest disciples and he goes up on the mountain and he is transfigured before them. They see some of his eternal heavenly glory. They see Moses and Elijah, the great prophets, standing there speaking with him. They hear the voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Listen to him. And then the disciples ask him, this is, Chapter 17, verse 10. The disciples, having just seen him standing there with Elijah and Moses, they say, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking. And they recalled what had happened to John the Baptist. That previously, even in in chapter 11, Jesus had already compared John to uh, Elijah as a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. 
that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before that day of reckoning comes, I will send my messenger to prepare the way. I will send Elijah. And Jesus has already compared John the Baptist with Elijah and said, but just like with the other prophets who had to suffer, John also suffered and they recalled what had happened to him. That earlier in the book of Matthew, we had, it had been described about how um, John was put into prison because the people around didn't like what they were hearing him say, the prophecies that he was making, the truth-telling that he was speaking to people in power, that he was saying to them, you cannot do this, this is not right, this is sin, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he was thrown into jail and then he was beheaded. And Jesus is saying, and just like that, just like that experience, who John, the messenger, preparing the way of the Lord, he is the one who came, and just as he suffered, so also I must suffer. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. The chief priests and the scribes are going to do to me whatever they want, and ultimately I'm going to die and then rise from the dead. In chapter 11, he had said, For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so now, as they're gathered in Galilee, Jesus says to them, this is verse 22 of chapter 17 of the book of Matthew, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There was the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then immediately Jesus says, yes, that is true, and I'm going to suffer. And then they see the transfiguration, and they go, wow, the kingdom of heaven is like here right now, and he goes, yes, and I'm going to have to suffer. And then he comes down the mountain, and he heals a boy who has uh, these seizures that cause him to be thrown into the pit, and he casts out the demon, and they're like, yes, this is great, the kingdom of God is like coming right here, right now, and he says, and now now I am about to be delivered into the hands of men. There is an urgency here that Jesus is saying, as you are recognizing who I am, so you must also understand what's about to happen. Because if you think that this is going to come in some great victory, you are mistaken. If you think I'm going to have this big flash of power and then the kingdom of God is going to come like boom, and it's going to resonate throughout all the earth and the whole earth is going to shake and everybody is going to tremble and bow down to me and you, my followers. You are greatly mistaken because what's about to happen, guys, now that you know who I am, now that you know that I am God in flesh, what's about to happen is I'm going to be handed over to those who are in charge and they're going to do to me whatever they want. And I'm going to have to suffer physically and emotionally and public humiliation. I am going to have to suffer it all. And it is coming very soon. It's coming very soon. And they will 
kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You can imagine, right, if that person who won the Grammy and then is like, okay, but now I have to die, the people around them would freak out. The actor who won the Golden Globe who says, okay, now I'm going to be betrayed and it's going to be suffering from here on out, those close would be like, wait, wait, whoa, hey, whoa, why? Why? Why that? Let's pick something different. The MVP of the championship who tells their team, okay, now I'm going to go suffer and die. And the teammates would go, uh, hold up. Maybe not. Maybe there could be something different. Maybe there could be a different way. Maybe something else instead. Maybe not. The suffering and death path, that doesn't sound great. And his disciples are hearing him talk about how he is going to have to suffer and die. And they're not understanding fully what this rising from the dead thing is. And they are very distressed. They're distressed because they don't understand what's going on. They're distressed because they don't see that as being the way forward, right? They were expecting some kind of victory, and this doesn't seem like the way to victory. They were looking at Jesus as a kind of hope. They were seeing the salvation through Jesus of all of these physical ailments and spiritual afflictions. They were seeing the way that Jesus was remedying all of that with this voice of authority that just commands demons and they leave. He commands the seas and they are stilled. He commands the illnesses and the failings of the body and it is restored. And they are watching all of that and they're saying, wait a second, time out, why suffering? Why suffering? Jesus, the hope that we had in you was the end of suffering, the end of oppression, the end of rejection. Why then must there be suffering? But here we see in Quick succession in three different times, Matthew wanting to put it out in front of us so that we also, like the disciples, right? The disciples don't get it. They're freaked out. And Matthew's trying to make it clear for us too as we're reading through his book and we're in the middle and now Jesus is headed to, toward Jerusalem. Matthew's like, hey, uh, guess what? He's going to die. Those of you who are reading this story of Jesus, those of you who are uh, would-be disciples or followers of Jesus, you want to believe in him, I want to give you a preview, he's going to die. This is not like um, hidden foreshadowing. This isn't like when you're watching a TV show or a movie or something and they put in the little nuggets and then you go, oh wow, that's what that meant, that's what was coming next. This is like overt, I'm telling you, I'm warning you ahead of time so that when you get there, you don't freak out. And the, co- the result is instead a freak out. They're, they're, they are greatly distressed. Why does Jesus have to suffer? 
Why does Jesus have to die? And if you were paying really close attention as we were going through the last several weeks, you'll notice that we skipped over a couple of verses so that we could stick them in here and I could treat these all together. Because today what I want to do is I want to say, this is why Jesus had to die. You see, when he says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, he uses this term for himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He uses this term to describe himself. It's kind of like a title. And it's used throughout the Old Testament in a variety of different places. But one of the places that it's used is in Psalm 84, also very similarly in Psalm 144, where it talks about uh, who is man that you would, the son of man that you would be mindful of him. And Jesus is using this term as he's describing himself and he's saying, okay, now the son of man, that's me. Yes, I am God in flesh, but I am also the son of man so that I may identify with you. I am. I, the Son of Man, am going to have to suffer. And it harkens back to Psalm 84, and there's somebody else in the New Testament that harkens back to Psalm 84. And it's in Hebrews chapter 2. So what I'd like to do, if you'll permit me, is to jump from the book of Matthew into the book of Hebrews. Because while Matthew is telling us what's going to happen to Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews explains to us why it had to happen. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll spend some time in there. In Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says this, It has been testified somewhere, that's a understatement. It's been testified somewhere in the Old Testament, in a couple of different places. Okay. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So this author of Hebrews is reaching back to the Psalms and saying, it's said somewhere, and he quotes from Psalm 84, it's said somewhere that who is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him? And at this point in the Psalm 84, it is referring to the people, right? People, uh, sons, daughters of, of men that have been made uh, 
who have been made for a while lower than the angels, but then are raised up and and considered by God to be important and and held up and crowned with glory and honor. And then it says, and, and puts everything in subjection under his feet. And what we recognize here, as, as the Hebrew, author of Hebrews is pointing it out and trying to make it very clear for us, is that Jesus is the Son of Man, right? There are many sons and daughters of men, but Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. He is the one who will fulfill all of the Scriptures. And so it says that everything is then being put on. Under his control, everything is put into... Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So that because of what Jesus has done, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but because of who he is and what he has done, everything has been given to Jesus and said, okay, this is yours. It is now completely under your control. What is this? Everything. Everything. All of creation has been handed over to Jesus to be put under his control. It's all been handed to him. And you might say, okay, but I'm looking around and it doesn't seem like Jesus has full control over everything. There's an awful lot of chaos. There's an awful lot of destruction. There's an awful lot of sin going on around here that I don't th- it doesn't feel like everything has been given to, to Jesus. And it, that's what he says. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He has not completely taken control over it. It He's allowing things to happen. But everything has been handed over to him. Namely, verse 9, Jesus. He has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why was everything handed over to him? It is because he died. That's why. He put his life on the line. He, like the, kind, the hero who steps in and goes, oh no, everybody is going to die. And they go in and they take the bullet and they, they or they uh, drop on the grenade or whatever it is so that they are protecting everybody else and they give their life for everyone else. They are the great hero. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He saw the bomb of sin and the consequences of that and he dove on top of it and he said, I'm giving my life for everyone else. And because of that, he has given great glory and great honor, and everything has been handed over to him. Because he, the willing hero, jumped in to take the the, uh, consequences of sin on himself. That is, death. He jumped in, he took the consequences of sin upon himself, and he died in the place of everybody else. It's as if we all had uh, sin in our lives and they said, okay, okay, if, if you have sin, you are stuck in this room. Anytime anybody sins, you're stuck in this room. That's the sin room. That's where everybody who sins has to go. Well, what's going to happen in the sin room? You're all going to die. That's the consequences of sin. 
If you sin, you have to go into the sin room, and then you, you're all going to die. And Jesus said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the sin room. Wait, Jesus, you don't have to go into the sin room because you didn't sin. I know. I know that. I'm volunteering to go into the sin room. I'm volunteering to go into the sin room, and I'm volunteering to take the, the consequences of sin on myself. I am going to die so that everybody else doesn't have to. That's what Jesus did. For it was fitting, it says in verse 10, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the, foundation of, make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. It was fitting, it says, that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be, should, make, the foundation, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, can we unpack that sentence just a little bit? It was fitting. It was appropriate. It was right that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Just stop right there. Who are we talking about? The one for whom and by whom all things exist. In the beginning, God was, and in the beginning, there was only God, and God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Why? Because he wanted to. For his own pleasure and delight, God created everything. For his own pleasure and delight, God created everything and decided it will continue to be. He is the founder of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. God, in the beginning, created everything for His own delight and pleasure. And sin entered that and messed it up, and He could have gone, well, nope, we're going to start all over. Done with this creation, I'm just going to make a new one. And He didn't do that. He let the thing run. He let it play out. This one for whom and by whom all things exist, for his pleasure, by his pleasure, it was all created and continues to be. It is appropriate and fitting that he then, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, I made this beautiful creation. It is perfect. I delight in it. Oh, it's marred with sin. Now the sin has messed things up. We're going to need to get rid of that and deal with that. It is appropriate then that the way that that should be done 
is that the founder and creator should suffer. What? Why is that appropriate? Can you imagine somebody painting a great painting and then somebody else comes in and draws on it? And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to have to suffer now to, to fix it and make it right. Why couldn't I just paint it again? Why can't I just erase the things that they did? But no, what Jesus does is he says, okay, I am going to suffer. It is appropriate for me to suffer to make this right again, to make this beautiful again. So that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the one source, so that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that he can become like us and say, these are my siblings here. These are my siblings here. I'm going to come in and I am going to uh, take away the sin by becoming like you so that I can identify with you. We are now siblings together. And I look through this and say, hang on. This one for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering? Is not God already perfect? Is there anything missing or lacking in God? According to his character, yes, God is perfect. There is nothing lacking. But for him to be the perfect Savior, to find perfection in that also, he had to experience what they experienced. That would make him the perfect Savior. He could come in like a superhero and do this some other way, right? He could come in with a, like a superhero and, and just take care of all of the sin things and just fix the whole thing. He could do that, and he would look at us and go, I do not understand you humans. He could come in with his superpowers and go, this is so easy, guys. I don't understand why you're struggling with this. I do not understand how you got into this predicament in the first place. You're in this deep pit, just jump out. It's easy. Look, I jump in, I grab you, we jump out. And the humans are down there in the bottom of the pit going, I can't. I can't, I can't jump out. That's, that's not a, a thing that people do. And so for Jesus to be made perfect, not only in character, but also as the Savior of mankind, he becomes like them and says, these are my brothers and sisters. I have become like them. These are my family. I know them. And when they struggle, I see why. 
Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is made like them. He partook of the same things that, so that through death, the consequence of sin, he might destroy the power of death. That thing of which we are all afraid that thing that means the end of life. And Jesus comes in and through death removes the power of death and the fear of death. Why are we afraid of death? Because we are afraid that is the end. That all of our value, that all of our life, that all of our experience at that point point will be over and maybe that's the end the end or maybe there is something worse after that and Jesus says no because of my death I am giving you eternal life you do not any longer have to worry about or fear or be afraid of physical death because you have eternal spiritual life with God. And so all of the, the things that the devil might use to uh, cajole you, put pressure on you, through the fear of death, Jesus removes all of that and goes, no, that's no longer in play anymore. No more fear for you. Therefore, it says, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus made this beautiful painting. Somebody came and marred it, messed it all up. And rather than removing that and then just going, okay, there it is. Instead, he takes that and starts making his painting around it and incorporating it into what he is doing so that it might be something more beautiful yet. He himself steps into it and offers his own life so that those who had been struggling with sin might know that he is a brother with them. And then while he falls on the consequences of death, on the consequences of sin and takes the death that they deserved, now is able to empathize with them as high priest. 
to sympathize with them and to say, I understand what you are going through. Can you imagine those sins and regrets that you have from your life, maybe just from this last week? They, you may have some sins and regrets from this last week. You, you may have other ones that are bigger, hopefully, but maybe not, further back. Those great regrets that you wish that no one would know about, that you wish you had never done, that had never happened. And all of that is laid bare before God. And you have to go before God and say, God, this is my life. And we would like to be able to lay out our lives before God and say, look at all the high points along the way. Look at all the peaks. And certainly, God, with the great peaks that, that there were in my life and how kind I was to that person in that episode and how friendly I was over here and how generous I was over there and how moral I was in this circumstance, certainly, God, when you look at my peaks, you won't be able to see the valleys, right? The canyons and the depths. And God, from his view above, says, I see it all. I see the whole thing. I see the highest of highs and I see the lowest of lows. I see it all. And you have to put that out before God and say, this is my whole life. How could you love me? Considering all that I have done. Considering my whole life. How could you accept me? And the answer is, because while there were things that you did that are deserving of death, Jesus has died in your place. And any time we are struggling with temptation of sin that leads to death, Jesus says, I understand that. I understand that. I've been there. I was tempted to. When you want an advocate for something, don't you want somebody who understands? When I'm struggling with something, I want to talk to somebody who's struggled with it too. Please, would you keep those self-righteous people that have never struggled away from me when I'm trying to deal with this? Oh, you've never struggled with procrastination? Get out. You can't help me with your fancy to-do lists and your helpful calendar. You can't help. You don't understand me. You don't understand my procrastination. Oh, you've never been through this kind of physical pain before? Please tell me about how helpful I should be. Please tell me about how to find joy in these circumstances. No, I, I want somebody who has been there, 
who has experienced it with me, that they can say, oh, yeah, that's really hard. That's really hard. I understand what you're going through. I understand those temptations. I understand that pain that you're feeling. I understand that rejection. I understand that temptation to find comfort in sin. I understand that temptation to medicate in that way. I understand that. But just like I don't want somebody who's never dealt with it before to be the one who's trying to help me through the things that's so hard for me, I also don't want somebody who just has failed. Somebody who's going to come alongside me and go, yep, there's no hope, let's just dive right in. I need somebody who both understands and has come out on the other side victorious. That, that to me, is the perfect kind of a Savior. And that is who Jesus is. And so in the book of Matthew, we see the flashes of brilliance of who Jesus is and his power and authority over the created order. And we see his glory as it is transfigured before his disciples. And yet, in order for him to be the perfect Savior, he must suffer and die. Suffering the same things, being tempted in the same ways that we are. Therefore, verse 17 of of, uh, of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Every time we are tempted, we can say, Jesus, you know what this is like. You understand what this temptation feels like to me. Would you forgive me of my sin? And would you help me to avoid it? And Jesus says, my child. My brother, my sister. Come to me. I know. I know. And I've died already so that you don't have to. And when Jesus came down off that mountain and then healed that boy, he told his disciples, and now I have to go. Because the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And here's what we know. That Jesus did go to Jerusalem. That he was betrayed and rejected by the people, that he was handed over to the leaders who found him guilty of made-up crimes. 
They beat him, mocked him, spit on him, dragged him outside the city, and stuck him on a cross where he died. And he suffered all of that so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of death anymore. Because for Jesus, that was not the end. He was put in the tomb and three days later rose again from the dead. And that is the victory. And that is the hope. Because if we are with Jesus and we hear him say, okay, you've seen all the greatness and now I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. And we go, hold up, no! We had such great hope that you were going to be the Savior. How can you be the Savior if you're dead? And the disciples were very distressed, but you and I don't have to be very distressed because we understand what Jesus meant when he said, and on the third day rise again from the dead. It meant that he had disarmed the devil, he had disarmed death, he had disarmed sin, and said, you have no more authority because all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And so anybody who calls themselves my brother and sister, anybody who comes to me, I'm setting free. And so we don't have to be very distressed along with the disciples. We get to have a great hope because we recognize that that suffering and death made Jesus the perfect Savior for us. And in his resurrection was the victory and is our hope. Because if we suffer in this life as he suffered, and if we experience the physical death that he uh, experienced, we also have the hope of the resurrection that he received. Let's pray. Lord God, you have seen all of our lives. You have seen the peaks and you have seen the valleys. You know our greatest sins. And you know the ways that we have rejected you in the past. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we are not worthy to be in your presence. And so we thank you that you have sent Jesus, the founder not only of creation, but also of salvation, to experience the things that we have experienced and continue to experience so that he might offer us a new and living hope. And Father, it is in that hope that we now rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.